You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, welcome everybody. Great to see you in the room online and glad to be with you as this series. We're in this series we're doing, we're talking about living out of a living hope. And just a moment ago when, when Kyong prayed for the rain to go away, some of you are like, I believe Lord, <laughs> but help my unbelief. <laughs> but we are going to believe and we'll make a call. Yes. One way or the other as soon uh, this afternoon. So anyway, we're still believing. Don't stop believing. I've heard somebody sing and say one time. All right. But here we go. Our scripture reading today is going to be from 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3. I'll be your reader. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they also, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory, Enjoy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. That's the reading of God's word this rainy day. All his people said, amen, amen. Hey, I got a tough question here to kick us off, but hang with me, stay with me. Here's my tough question. What would you do if you knew that something terrible was also inevitable. Something terrible was often also inevitable. What would you do if you knew that you would face something so grievous it might make you want to give up? What, what if you knew you were destined for something difficult? What would you do? Now, if that kind of question sounds like a question asked by a million science fiction time travel tales... 
You wouldn't be wrong. You would be right. So let me give you two. All right. And for those of you who are science fiction people, as Carrie says, you're Morgan's people, uh, you're going to like this. Uh, if you're not, then just hang with there and pray for me real hard, and maybe you'll get something else out of the message before we're done. Okay. Uh, in the brand new Star Trek show, Strange New Worlds, both of you have seen this. Yes. The captain of the ship in the show, the protagonist, is given foreknowledge by someone from his future. Don't ask how this happens. This is how, this, how these things go. He's given foreknowledge about a terrible accident that will happen to him that will leave him permanently burned, scarred, mute, and paralyzed for the rest of his life. So what will he do with this knowledge? How will he handle it? At first, his friends all tell him, you can avoid it. Don't worry about it. Not going to happen. So that's what he kind of tries to do. He tries to avoid suffering. But when he's shown what it'll cost others that he loves, what will happen if he avoids difficulties in his life, he finds his choices aren't so easy. On the other hand, second example, the evil Thanos. Yes, in Marvel. When given knowledge from his future about suffering he'll face, he tries to use that knowledge also to escape suffering and to inflict pain on others. He says that he, not his sufferings, are inevitable. If you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. Until he meets the Avengers, that is. But that's giving it away again for both of you who don't know what happens. The question is again, what if you knew you were destined for something difficult? What would you do with that? Well, in this passage, the writer, Paul the Apostle, he's like someone from your past who gives you knowledge about your future because he says here in no uncertain terms that Christians are destined for trials and suffering. I don't know about you. I would have preferred to read something else. Like to say, uh, you know, Paul says, you're destined to own vacation homes around the world. Congratulations. You know. You're destined to own fleets of sports cars. That's a good one. I'll take that. Front row tickets for life. For whatever thing you like to watch. But he doesn't say that. He says this. What do we do with this? How do we process it? We have to answer the question, with the war in Ukraine right now, hmm? a war in Israel, war in Armenia, with Christian churches being burned by the hundreds in Pakistan right now, at some point we have to ask and answer the question, what is more true, that we can always avoid difficulties, or that difficulties, maybe even suffering, they are inevitable? And if it's true, suffering is inevitable at a certain level, what does that do to us? How do we handle that. Let's see. That's what this passage is about. Let's see, number one, why Paul says this, why he says that suffering is inevitable. There's a reason. Number two, why, though, we should love what Paul says. I'm going to try to get you to love it before we're done. Say, Morgan, you're trying the impossible. And number three, why, what we should do with what Paul says. So number one, why Paul says what he says. Number two, why we should love it. And finally, we'll get practical and look what we should do with what Paul says. I'll be a little longer on the first, shorter on the others. Here we go. Number one, here's why Paul says suffering is inevitable. Look at verse 14. He says, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from. Now, notice how he begins this section. He says, you Thessalonians, 
you Christians in Thessalonica, you are suffering just like many other churches around the world in that day suffered. He says, your church is suffering so similarly to the others. It's like you're imitating them. It's like a copycat mimicking thing you've got going on. Well, what had happened to these Thessalonians? Well, back in Acts 17, a little background we saw two weeks ago, we saw that Paul went into this city, Thessalonica, and began a brand new church. And there in Thessalonica, we read this, verse four, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number, would you say it again, a large number, of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few, say quite a few, prominent women. So as a result of all of this, some Jewish citizens complained. They formed a mob. The Romans swept in. They drug some of the Christians out into the streets, had them arrested. Paul's life was threatened. He fled for his life, and the city was thrown into an uproar. Why? Why did the Romans react so severely and quickly? Why did they try to kill this church in its infancy? Well, the rich city of Thessalonica in the first century, it looked stable up on top, but underneath it was a powder keg getting ready to blow. Why? Well, about 200 years before this letter was ever written, Thessalonica originally belonged to Greece, not to Rome. Thessalonica originally belonged not to Caesar, but to Alexander the Great. We know this name. But after countless years of war, the Romans won, conquered Thessalonica, and it became part of their empire. So now if you're the emperor of Rome, what might keep you up at night about this city? Well, what did keep the emperor up at night was the thought that one of the pearls of the empire, a rich city with a lot of tax revenue, mind you, that had been hotly contested for years and was still full of, we saw it, Greek-speaking people might revolt. What might keep you up at night was the thought that this city might try to reject your authority and embrace another authority, or even worse, another king. And now into this city come Paul and Silas and Timothy talking about a new king. A new king named Jesus who, even if you killed him, would come back to life? I'm talking about a new king who literally couldn't stay dead and who promised to raise his followers from the dead? He had a new kingdom with a new citizenship for all people all over the world. So if you're the Roman emperor, the Roman officials, and the Roman army, wouldn't that sound like a rebellion in the making? Hmm? Wouldn't that sound like a revolution was starting under your nose? I think it would. And so when a great number of Greek-speaking people were converted and a bunch of prominent women, like when Taylor Swift and her whole backing band and dancers and tour crew and all of them, when they were all converted, in Jesus' name, right? When these female celebrities were coming to Christ, what do you think this did to the Roman officials? It unnerved them, and they swooped in. And attacked. What would happen to this church now? Paul says this, don't be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know, it's kind of like Paul's like, hashtag, I told you so, you know. His Instagram handle, will you believe me now, underscore Thessalonians. Why does Paul say Christians are destined for trials and sufferings? Here's why. 
it's not only because we, yes, live in a world broken by sin where your body and your mind might betray you. It's not only because humans are fallen and things like corruption and abuse and evil happen. It's not only because even creation itself is marred by the fall of humanity. We do suffer, yes, because of those things. But right here, Paul is saying that Christians are destined for suffering and for trials for a specific reason. And here it is. Christians are destined, he's saying, for trials and suffering because the Christian faith is a threat to every other worldview, every other kingdom, and every other king. Every other kingdom, every other worldview, and every other king. Yes, we are people of peace. No, we don't go looking for trouble. And yes, we have something in common, gratefully, with almost every other faith. But at some point, a line is drawn between Christ and every other faith and worldview and kingdom. Let me give you an example of a few of these. Here's why I say this. To the Jewish person, for example, Christianity says, the Messiah of your scriptures is Jesus of Nazareth. Jewish friends, you wait in vain for what God has already sent. To the Hindu person, Christianity says Jesus is not just one God among many. No, he is the only way to one God. Hey, Hindu friends, the, the, world, the Christian worldview says you will not be reincarnated. You're only going to live once and die once, and then you will face judgment from Jesus in the life to come. To the Muslim, Christianity says God is tripersonal. He is three in one. And Jesus is not just another prophet. He is not only the final prophet about whom the rest of the prophets spoke, but he is the son of God who died on a cross bodily and was raised back to life. To the Buddhist, Christianity says, Buddhist friends, suffering is not an illusion. Suffering is real. Jesus' suffering was real. And our goal is not to escape this world, but to transform it with the love from a God who can be known because that God has revealed himself to the world. And to the atheist, Christianity says, you actually have no real basis for truth or for justice without God Love is only a chemical reaction. And any beauty you feel is a, like a chemical fake or a philosophical fraud. Atheist friend, you have no real hope for the future. With no real God, any future you might have would be meaningless anyway. And to you and me as individual people today, Christianity says this, that you are a bad king. <laughs> you are spiritually bankrupt tainted by sin, and wholly incapable of saving yourself. You must bow your knee before Jesus, repent of your sin, and ask him to receive you into his kingdom of love and light and truth now. Can you see why Christianity not might, but will produce suffering and trials? Because at some level, it's offensive to everyone. And at some point, somebody's just going to push back, if not our own hearts, perhaps, right now. It's offensive because of its core unique claim made by the mouth of Christ himself that there is one particular exclusive Savior. For all peoples, that claim will inevitably bring it into conflict with every other power. See, Rome was right to be nervous. The Jewish people were right to be unsettled. They grasped what following Jesus meant. Do you, do we, 
Following Jesus means giving him, not the state, your first allegiance. It means giving him, not your political party, your first allegiance. It means giving him, not even your family, your first allegiance. See, following Jesus is subversive to every other source of power, including your own. And if you follow Jesus, you're inevitably destined to bump up against some other power somewhere, somehow that doesn't like what that means. That's why number one, ooh, my Lord, it's quiet. (laughs) Paul says suffering and trials as a Christian are inevitable. But that's not bad news. That's actually good news. And here is why. Number two, here's where my... Oh, hopefully every power of persuasion I have can kick in and get number two. Here's why we should love, why you should love what Paul says. So give me a shot, all right? Why should we love it? Now, the reason I ask that question is because we already know why we hate it. We already know why we hate it. Actually, Heather, why do we hate what Paul says? And then I changed it. I'm like, we already know this. We hate what Paul says because we humans, oh, we are so deeply loyal to our comfort. So deeply committed to avoiding discomfort. In particular, we hate, Paul says, because we live in a context where for most of us, our greatest suffering is our seasonal allergies. (laughs) Which, by the way, are no joke either, are they? I mean, cedar fever in January, come on, the cedar struggle is real. All right. No, we hate what Paul says because we live in the land of Ur. Ur, not Abraham's Ur, but another Ur. A land where bigger is always better, where sexier is always better, where grander and louder and tastier and faster are always better. And so if we live in the land of Ur and your life you think should only be filled with things like Ur's, like the man in Jesus' parable with bigger and better barns, sure, you should hate what Paul says. Because what Paul says then is the worst thing you could possibly hear. You should reject it. But I want to tell you, if you, if we reject Paul here, that leaves no room for Jesus there. Because if we reject Paul here, that leaves no room for Jesus there over in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, his central teaching where he says, you are blessed not when you prosper, but when you suffer for his name. If you reject Paul here, that leaves no room for Jesus there where he says, in this world, you will have troubles. Yes, if we reject Paul here, I want to tell you, in the end, we leave no room, not just for the words of, but for the person of Jesus, not at all. We leave no room for Isaiah 53, who speaks of the scandalous, suffering servant of Jesus Christ himself. Now, of course, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy good things. Oh, good trips, glory to God, great vacations, good food, good fun, and yes, for the married Christian, good sex. That's part of our theology. Yeah, these are all good gifts from a good God because God is good. And when we taste his goodness in those things now, we taste a bit of the goodness of what the world one day will be like when Jesus remakes it. But we don't live there yet. We live here now. And because we don't live there yet, let me tell you again why I think we should love what Paul says now. You should love what Paul says for three reasons. Actually, three people. Let me tell you about them. Number one, you should love what Paul says because a man 
named Rocky in Bangladesh loves what Paul says. Rocky, not his real name. He was nicknamed that because he used to be a Bangladeshi boxer. Yes, Rocky pastors the Every Nation Church in Bangladesh in the middle of threats and persecution. And Rocky is a converted Muslim. And one day, one day, true story, an acquaintance of his asked if he wanted to meet someone high up in the Al-Qaeda organization, the terrorist organization. Now, Rocky was afraid really afraid, but he prayed about it. He said yes, and he got up one morning before his wife got up, and he left her a note asking her to pray for him until and if he got home. And the man he was introduced to that day ended up being, again, true story, Osama bin Laden's personal bodyguard. Rocky boldly shared Jesus with him. He literally told him when he met him for the first time, you are going to hell. (laughs) For all the evil you've done. The bodyguard fell to his knees and accepted Christ. The bodyguard began to lead a Bible study with some Muslim imams. It's kind of like their pastors. And when word of that got out, the bodyguard was beaten so severely, he ended up hospitalized. But he came back out insisting that he should be allowed to keep preaching. Now, it's actually kind of darkly humorous about this, is that as a special forces trained black belt, he said he could have killed all of his attackers easily. (laughs) him versus all of them. But he said he heard the voice of Jesus tell him not to lay a hand on any of them. So when Rocky reads, when Osama bin Laden's bodyguard turned Christian preacher reads that Christians are destined for trials and suffering because they live for Jesus, do you know what it does to them? It puts steel in their spines. It puts courage in their hearts. It tells them something true, not false about the world, which is that following Jesus is costly. You should love also what Paul says, second person, second reason, because a man named Jackie Su in China loves what Paul says. Back in 2018, the Chinese government did what many feared they would do, and they made it illegal to share Christianity with anyone under the age of 18. Now think about that, parents. They just outlawed your ability to talk about faith with your own kids. And kids are rewarded for turning in their parents if they do so. They made it illegal to talk about Jesus on university campuses. Why? Chinese government's not dumb. They know, like the Roman emperor knew, that Jesus is a threat to a state which claims absolute power over your life. And when they passed this law, Jackie, who leads our Every Nation churches in China, said most of the campus ministries left those universities out of fear. But they sent their remaining Christian students to him into our Every Nation campus chapters and leaders because they knew they would stay no matter what. Jackie was at our most recent world conference in Cape Town, South Africa, where I heard him share this story. And because it was even illegal for him to be at this conference, he hadn't been out of the country, I think, to a conference in more than 10 years. He knew he could be arrested or worse when he got on the plane and he went back home. So when he left the stage, here's what he said. He said, I'll either see you soon or I'll see you in heaven. Yeah. And third, you should love what Paul says because Pastor Sam in Nigeria loves what Paul says. Yeah, Pastor Sam Ayadogbon is our pastor in Lagos. He's faced decades of death threats, gun, guns held to his head, constant persecution even from his government. He said, with kind of a, a dark sense of humor, he says that college students in his church say that just like there are levels of iPhones, there are levels of trouble. The Nigerian word for this is the word shege. 
Shege. Shege means trouble in Nigerian in the northern dialect, I'm, I was assured. Anyway, I fact check this, yes. Uh, small troubles, Pastor Sam said, are like having regular uh, iPhone Shege. Medium troubles are like having iPhone Pro Shege. But when troubles and persecution get real bad, you're having iPhone Pro Max Shege. Yeah. They say when troubles and persecution hits you, it's like, it's like you're in the gym and your shege's getting worked out. You're just going to come out stronger. See, they all love, though, what Paul says because Paul has told them the truth. To live for Jesus at some level is to be on some kind of collision course with culture. No one can serve two masters. Following Jesus means we're destined for trials. And therefore, the Christian scriptures arm us with truth, facts, history, and reality. The very tools we need to be a great public witness and faithful witness in our world. That's why, number two, I think we should love what Paul says. But what do we do with this? All right, how do we apply this? What do we now do? What are we supposed to do with what Paul says? Here it is. I think the answer to that question, what should we do with all of this, is to ask Another question, maybe the right question, which is this. What did Paul do with what Paul said? Paul's given that advice here, right? What should he do? What should we do? Well, we should do what Paul did with what Paul said. When Paul arms them with the truth about their trials, what does he do? I love this. It says he sent someone to comfort them in their trials and their struggles. He said, so when we could stand it no longer... We sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. So Paul didn't leave them alone. No, he sent them a helper, a co-laborer. Why? Two reasons. To strengthen them and to comfort them. And if you're a Christian person, If you've been around for any bit of time, this should be starting to sound a little familiar, right? This is literally the role of who? Come on. The Holy Spirit, yes. In the believer's life, sent to comfort and to strengthen, to give power, to minister love. See, in Greek, the the word for encouragement, if you don't know, is parakaleo. Parakaleo, which is why a nickname for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. Many people have used. Now, that's not quite as catchy as the, the Irish term for the Holy Spirit, on God gloss, which is sort of Irish for the, the wild goose, by the way. The wild goose, because you never know what's going to happen when a person gets the ghost, as they say. <laughs> on God gloss. Now, we say paraclete because to encourage, paracaleo, means to come alongside, to strengthen and comfort. See, Paul sent Timothy to do paracletic ministry because he knew what you know, which is this. When you face trials, it unsettles you. It's like you're discombobulated. It makes you want to leave, perhaps even your faith, to become homeless in your faith. Makes you want to quit. And even though as Christians we do have the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this is showing us we still need paracletic ministry from one another. Me to you, you to me, we to one another. I have a friend who pastors a church in another city here in Texas, and he's leading this church right now through its most difficult, darkest hour. He's leading it after the previous leaders were busted by the U.S. government for tax evasion. 
Never good. When the going got tough, the pastors basically left the church overnight. And my friend, the associate, he's left picking up the pieces. He's such a man of courage and integrity and principle and prayer. It's amazing. And just turning the church around, he said, has been hard enough. But one of the people who has stayed with him through thick and all the especially thin is a man we'll call him Tommy. Tommy is his key leader in this struggling church. He's the volunteer small groups coordinator. He runs a business, multiple businesses actually, and volunteers a ton of time just to serve his church. And Tommy's wife, in her 40s, and had a prolonged illness. And two weeks ago, she died. That same week, Tommy, same week, Tommy himself was diagnosed with kidney failure. In and out of the hospital every day. And the following week, just recently, his 15-year-old son was diagnosed with a heart condition. This is terrible. I picked up the phone and I called my friend and I asked him, how are you doing? Dare I even ask it, you know? And he's a tough dude. He's huge. He plays college football. He can still bench press like a truck and a half. And he said, you know, it's really hard. It's so discouraging. I've been through all of this and this happens to this man and this family. It affects our whole church. He said, it's hard to trust God when these things happen. So listen, I said to him, I want you to know, you have all my respect. All my respect as a man. And as a leader, doing what you're doing, it's so challenging. I don't even know if I could do it. You are such a man of courage. I said, and integrity, and principle, and prayer uh, for God's people. And so I told him this, raised my voice a little bit. I said, you are going to make it. Your church is going to make it. You're going to pull through for all the good things. And I believe your church is going to be known for all the good things that are in your heart. You're just sowing a seed now. That's going to bear good fruit. I said, don't quit. Don't give up. God is with you and he's for you. And he started to get a little emotional on the call. Yeah. And he said, thank you. He said, that meant more to me than you could know. Now, I definitely don't always get those conversations right, but I think I managed to do some good right then. Why? That I tapped into a little bit of parakaleo. That's what Paul sent Timothy to do for these Christians. And that's why we ought to do what Paul did. We do what he did, of course, because Jesus has done this for us first. He sent us his spirit to bring us encouragement. And so we, in the same way, give it away to others who need it. And we receive it when they offer it. That's part of what it means, I think, to live out of a living hope. Let me summarize it like this. Because we know we are destined for difficulty. We practice being a paracoletic people. Because we know we're destined for difficulty, we practice being a paracoletic people. That's a fancy way of saying we know life's going to get tough, so we say good stuff to each other. <laughs> we encourage one another. I'd like to practice this ministry, if we could, right now. Let me take a moment and pray for us, and then we'll apply it, all right? Holy Spirit, we come. We thank you for being sent to us to comfort, strengthen, encourage, and teach. Would you, Holy Spirit of God, on God gloss, the wild goose, fill our hearts, fill our bodies, fill our minds in a fresh way in these moments we have. If you're here and you're a you are going through it, suffering in some way, for sure, principally because you're following Christ. Somehow this has caused you difficulty, pain, sorrow, suffering. 
And if you're just going through it because you live in a fallen world, going through a trial, suffering of some kind, would you mind just next few moments, just we've got time for this. Actually, right now, would you just raise your hand right here in your seat, online, in the room, yeah, wherever you're listening this to, perhaps even on our podcast tomorrow. Raise your hand, yeah. Thank you for these, Lord. You see them. If you raised your hand, I'd like to ask you to do something that may seem just a bit awkward. So you just stand to your feet right where you are in your, in your chair, right where you are in your seat. Go ahead. Even if you're watching at home, you're out of town, you're sick, if you're able to get up, stand on your feet. And finally, if you're around these people, would you just extend your hand to them to show paracletic support? <laughs> been said three things are true in life. We're either going through a fire right now, we're on our way out of one, or we're headed into one. But regardless of where we find ourselves this, this morning, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up for encouragement and comfort, not only from you, Holy God, but from these next to us. If you're next to one of these people, would you just begin to pray, perhaps under your breath, for them? Lord, we thank you for them. We bless them. Would you hold them, keep them. But we're asking that none of us would be unsettled to leave home because of these trials. But we're also asking even more than that today. Lord, I'm also asking, because you're a good father, for help and for healing and for hope in their lives and in their their bodies. You're the kind of God you said that if we ask you for bread, you're not going to give us a stone. If we ask you for food, like an egg, you're not going to give us a snake. Someone's going to bite us. Lord, you're a good God. You ask us to come and bring you our requests. And just like when our kids, if we have them, if they they ask us for stuff because we love them, we want to say yes. We want to give them good things. You're a good God who wants to give good things. So we ask for these good things in their lives, for prosperity, for increase, for a new job, for promotion, for the the doing away of injustice, perhaps, where there is, for an uncovering of the the, the bad things, if there there is, and a revelation, uh, Lord, of people standing for you and doing good for you and loving you in spite of all that they've been through and are caring. We ask for hope and for breakthrough and for blessing right now for your children made in your image, redeemed and called by your name. We ask these things for encouragement today. Your name we pray all these things and we ask. Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.